Welcome back, everyone. This is The Change Log, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 216, and today, Jared and I are talking about something cool called Electron from GitHub. Zeke Sakelianos joined us to talk about all things for web for desktop. It was cool. We talked about cross-platform. We talked about the revolution of the web. We talked about all the cool ways that GitHub is pushing this project forward. It was extracted out of Atom, as you might know. Electron is super cool. If you know HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, you can build a desktop app. We got two sponsors today, TopTal and Rollbar. Our first sponsor of the show is our friends at TopTal. And this message is for all those team leaders out there looking to easily add new developers and designers to their team. Easily scale up when you need to. You got a big push coming. You got a new area of the product you've got to go into. And you've got more need than you thought you could. You've got to go through all this hassle of putting a job out there and hiring people to find the right people. Well, that's a bunch of hard stuff that you don't need to even deal with. Call upon my friends at TopTal. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. The cool thing about TopTal is that you can hire the top 3% of freelance software developers and designers. And what that means is they've got a rigorous screening process to identify the best. So when you call upon them to help you place the right kind of people into your team, then you know you're calling upon the best people out there. Once again, go to TopTal.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Or if you'd like a personal introduction, email me, adam at changelove.com. And now on to the show. All right, we're back. We got Zeke Sikelianos on the show today. And Jared, this is a big show for us because like, we've talked about Electron several times on the podcast. And this has been a 1.0 in the making, basically. So, so what's up with this show? Yeah, well, we're always happy to have uh, people from the GitHub on the show, especially since so much of our open source is hosted there, and yes. they do so many cool open source projects themselves, not the least of which, maybe the most of which at this point, since everybody's building cool stuff on top of it, is this Electron thing. This Electron thing, for sure. So, Zeke, you're on the, the Electron team. What part do you play there? And welcome to the show, by the way. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, I joined the team in March. I'm the, the newest member of the team. We are four people officially. And lately my role has just been around uh, smoothing out the documentation and in general making it easier for new users to get up to speed with Electron and get their apps built. One of the ways we like to start off a show, Zeke, and, uh, and I can only imagine what your story is because you've got a pretty diverse background. Uh, as per your website, graphic designer, open source hacker, aspiring home builder. I'm not sure where the last part comes in, but uh, we like to learn a bit about the guests that come on the show to kind of figure out, you know, hey, you're on the Electron team now. You work at GitHub. You do what you do now. But what got you there? Like what inspired you to become a software developer, become a designer or even become a home builder? So what's your story? How far do we got to go back to to get there? Well, I guess we could go back to my childhood. My father's side of the family is uh, a bunch of artisans and artists and poets and builders and things like that. So I have a very, I come from a very creative family. So as a youth, I was really interested in art and design. And um, I think I actually got my start doing graphic design and learning uh, Adobe Flash, or actually it was Macromedia Flash at the time. And um, just wanted to create interesting things on my computer and eventually came to realize that um, writing computer programs was a really powerful way to do that because you could um, 
make minute changes to code that would have some really interesting visual uh, change. So got started as a Flash developer back in 99, 2000, um, and was going to college, but was really more interested in doing web development than my studies. So eventually I dropped out of college, got a job at a graphic design firm and became the sort of resident web person there. So for a number of years, I was just working for a branding agency, doing lots of design work, but also starting to learn more about how to, to build web applications. So the, uh, the action script thing only got me so far. And eventually I needed to learn a server side web language to start making interesting web pages that people could interact with that could save information. So I learned PHP and um, did that for a number of years and eventually wanted to learn something better and or you know something more powerful or a little bit more uh, of a humane programming language. Ended up getting into Python and eventually Ruby. And my interest in programming just continued to grow um, despite the fact that initially it was just a means to an end. It was something that I was learning so that I could make more interesting visualizations or uh, facilitate new ways of doing graphic design. Um, but eventually I moved out to California in 2007 and started doing Ruby on Rails development full time and moved to Silicon Valley eventually and uh, started working for Heroku. And um, that was really when my career started to uh, become really programmer focused or, you know, working primarily on developer experience stuff. So it was strange that I ended up at Heroku because, uh, the reason Heroku appealed to me in the first place was that it was, uh, they provided a way for me to deploy web applications without having to know really anything about how servers work or how to manage load or how to um, configure a database or all those kinds of things that you have to know, all those, that ops sort of stuff. So I really was kind of the ideal customer for Heroku and somehow ended up being so fascinated with the product that I ended up working there as an engineer. So I kind of got involved in something that I swore to never have interest in. And it's sort of, continued to happen from there. Um, so at Heroku, I first worked on the, uh, the, the add-ons um, product, which is basically an app store for developers. It's a place to buy um, software as a service or platform as a service type things. So if you're building an application and you want to provision a, a database for it, um, you go to the add-on site or you use the command line interface to effectively purchase a, a database in the cloud. So my job there was to kind of design and build out this app store. Um, from there, I eventually was getting more and more interested in Node, having had a background in, in ActionScript, which, which was effectively a much more advanced version of JavaScript from the late 90s. Um, I really got interested in Node and saw that it was giving life to JavaScript outside of the browser. And Heroku had a product um, for deploying Node apps, but it was not maintained and it was not an official product and there was no real team around it. So um, people were starting to 
think of Heroku as not the place where you would want to host a node app, even though we were technically capable of doing it. So I devoted myself to um, revamping the build process for node apps on Heroku. So when you get push Heroku master with your node app, there's basically a set of bash scripts that run that uh, prepare your app to run on the platform. So it's things like figuring out which version of node to install, running NPM install, um, cleaning up the app and putting it on the shelf effectively on S3 um, until the routing layer is ready to, to pull it off the shelf and, and serve traffic with it. So this was like kind of the beginning of the end for me in terms of like my design career. So <laughs> um, this was really intriguing to me and really fun, but it was also like just a purely developer oriented project, right? Like there's just literally no yeah. aesthetic element to it. Just um, really trying to improve developer productivity. So despite it's kind of been an identity crisis thing for me, but um, I've embraced it because the, it was really rewarding to work on this thing at Heroku and see that I could make a small change to a, a product that was being used by thousands of developers every hour. And just knowing that if I made the build process a minute faster on average that was saving you know 5000 developer minutes per hour and just thinking about all the people who were having an improved development workflow because of this work so that's that kind of working on something with that kind of reach is addictive so from there i uh npm was forming as a company um Isaac Schluter, who created the NPM project, had just left uh, Joyent to found NPM. And so I got in touch with him and um, ended up leaving my very comfortable position at Heroku to help start NPM. What's the, what was the role at NPM then? Did, since your designer heart was a little crushed, did you get to pick it back up a little bit or did you stay on the developer yeah, side? I got a little bit of it back. So my job was to work on the website. So... The website that you see now at npmjs.org or npmjs.com, most of that is is my design work. Um, we did work with an outside consultancy for some of the design, but primarily the, the package page was my main focus. So my goal there was to try to make the NPM package page as, as useful or more useful than a GitHub repository page. Mm. So as a developer, when you're picking out a, when you're trying to find a dependency that you need to use in your project, there are a number of indicators that you look for. Like, um, is this project maintained? Does it have tests? Is it well-written? Does it have a bunch of issues? Has it been abandoned? Things like that. So my goal was to collect as much meaningful metadata about a package to display on the website, as, on the NPM website as possible. So people could just go, Get a quick gut check. Does this thing look legitimate? And if so, install it. So I got part of the way there. I don't, I don't think it necessarily quite rivals GitHub's README pages yet, but um, incremental progress. Yeah. So um, it, it, just to be clear, so you're talking about like npmjs.com slash package slash blah, whatever that blah is like slash async slash npm, whatever the package is. When you hit that package page, you can see if it's public, you can start it learn more about it. This is the page you're talking about, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. So some of the most meaningful pieces of metadata there are um, how recently was, it's mostly in the sidebar, right? How right. recently was the package published? How many releases have there been? How many maintainers are there? And then we realized that a lot of the really interesting data was actually coming from GitHub. So we wired up something to collect uh, issue counts and pull request counts and display those in the sidebar as well. And then nice. also downloads are are somewhat useful in, in helping to decide whether a package is um, legitimate. Unfortunately, with downloads, there are so many, um, so many uh, mirrors of the NPM registry that even if your package is not being used by any humans at all, um, just the, the mere act of publishing it will cause something like 50 downloads in the last week to be displayed um, just because all of the the mirrors are catching up and downloading the package. So it can be a little bit misleading, but um, can still be kind of a gauge. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but just recently, Adam, we were pinged about a new project called npms.io, npm search, and uh, we'll have it in changelog weekly either this week or next week, depending on when the show goes out. But it's, I think you would like it, Zeke, because it's, it's trying to do what to, for npm search uh, what you were kind of doing for the uh, first party uh, package pages, which is to organize the search around uh, quality, maintainability, and a few other metrics, which he actually scores each package. I'm not sure how the algorithm works, but he scores them on like a one to 10 on those three different metrics. And then he integrates that into the search. So it's, it's basically, it seems like a proof of concept. I think he probably eventually wants NPM to adopt it, you know, as the way they do their search. Um, but it's interesting because he's trying to pull in a lot of that extra. How do I decide the quality of this project? Similar to the kind of stuff you were trying to expose when you're working on the package pages. Yeah. So we actually, um, when I was at NPM, we talked about that a lot. And uh, I think one of the conclusions that we came to is that you can't really assign like a, a numeric score to a package because there are so many factors that can be uh, affecting your, your judgment. So one of the things is like, um, there's a, a very prolific module author named Substack who um, was one of the early sort of members of the Node. Uh, what do you want to call it? The Node zeitgeist community. Um, yeah. yeah, and he uh, he wrote some really sort of fundamental packages, and a lot of them haven't been touched in three or four years, but they do exactly what they need to do, and they're done. So. You may see a package and think, oh, this hasn't been touched in four years, probably not safe. But yeah. in many cases, um, those packages are stable. actually stable. Yeah. yeah. So I, I personally think that the best way to help people make decisions about which packages to use is just to display as much information as possible rather than trying to quantify it all in a single score. Um, but yeah, and the NPMS website is very cool. I, I really love mm -hmm. what, what they're doing there. Um, and from experience, I know that the NPM team, uh, at least when I was working there, had no spare cycles to work on the Elasticsearch appliance that they currently right. have. So it was kind of like the thing that nobody wanted to touch. So <laughs> it, it would be... It would be surprising to me if they put any real effort into search. So I would continue to expect those kinds of developments to come out of user land. So and PMS is definitely a good thing to to keep your eyes on. Yeah. 
What I like about this kind of thing too is that most often in open source, and this is what I love about open source, is that these two could very likely be offered positions potentially at NPM. Like, hey, you built this awesome thing, you've got some good thoughts around it, or at least some motivation. We need help. Come join the team. Yeah. Maybe it's contract, maybe it's long term, who knows? But there's been several jobs that I, you know, like Thomas Watson, I've talked to him from the NPM community as well. And he's, you know, he works at uh, Upbeat. Um, now, because of his influences and because of his work on Upbeat in the open source area, they're like, hey, you're really passionate about Node.js on Upbeat. Uh, come work for us. And so he now leads that pro- part of the project for them. And I think that's the beauty of open source is that, like, you can tap into something and strike a chord and then be offered a job, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as far as finding ways to sort of integrate third-party features into the NPM website, um, there have been a few of those that have happened. If you look on the sidebar on any package page, you'll notice there's a little link that says, try this out in your browser. And so that's actually a third-party site called Tonic Dev that has a little sort of online REPL kind of console thing where you can actually sort of play with a, a module live. Um, obviously, it only works for browsers that are or uh, packages that are browserify friendly, um, but there are there are many of those. Um, and then also, I think uh, npm's search tool um, has an autocomplete feature that is also powered by some third party service. And those came to yeah, it's called constructor.io. So those came to exist just because there were people in the user space who. Um, we're really interested in getting these integrations on their on the npm website just because obviously their visibility in the community is going to go way up right unfortunately though uh just last week or two weeks ago npm closed the source on their website um i saw your tweet you seemed bummed about it yeah it's it's uh it's really a disappointment to me because the the main thing that i was working on at npm was um sort of modularizing the website into some different NPM packages with separate responsibilities. The end goal being that, you know, we could solicit a lot more feedback and contribution from the community. Um, But unfortunately what happened is that NPM had to make some internal revisions to the registry. So in a nutshell, the way the NPM registry works now internally with private and scoped packages is that there's a there's a Postgres database that they run um, that's not public that is a follower of the Couch database. And um, it does a bunch of work to clean up the data in the Couch database and then also to add supplementary metadata um, about scoped packages. Scoped packages are like at username slash package name. So this is a new way for paid users of NPM to actually, and I think free users of NPM to to start um, to have their own namespace for packages. But uh, for technical reasons, um, the registry is effectively closed source now. So when that happened, the NPM website um, was no longer able to be run by anyone who doesn't work for the company. So you could still clone the website source and npm install, but if you actually wanted to run a development version of the website, mm. um, you couldn't because there was no no data store to sort of integrate with or no like mock database to to use. So um, 
this was something that was really important to me. And unfortunately, the, the, that is not the priority of the company, which understandably, um, you know, companies have to figure out a way to be profitable. So their, their focus is really on trying to encourage adoption of their paid plans and their um, organization product. That makes sense. So, I mean, everybody has their own motivations and we'll have to save debating that for a different show because <laughs> we can go too deep there. But it sounds like you know, your experiences at Heroku, your experiences at NPM obviously play into what you're doing now with GitHub and Electron. And from what I understand, you also have had some designer input onto the contributions page, which you know we use quite a bit to, as the change organizers developers we look at that page quite a bit just to kind of compare and contrast what's happening in a repository and who's involved in it and what their contributions are and obviously representing and clearly defining those people um you know for doing what they do there but take us to github you know you got uh you know your designer heart crushed to a degree at heroku but you were doing <laughs> great things you, you know revived it again at npm yeah. And, uh, you know, this, this story you've told us now. So how, you know, what's the state of things now for you personally? And then take us to what you're doing with Electronic GitHub. And we're coming up close on a break. So let's, let's do a short version of that. We'll kind of tee this part up and then we'll go into a break and we'll come back and go deeper. So help us get the GitHub for you. Okay, sure. So in the last uh, year and a half or so of my life, things have changed quite a bit. I ended up uh, leaving NPM. I got married. I... Uh, conceived our second child with my wife, uh, moved across the country to New Orleans, ended up moving back across the country to Santa Barbara to be closer to family as we have our second baby. Um, and so in that process, uh, when we were moving through all these transitions, I was kind of just um, freelancing. I ended up working for a startup in the East Bay um, called Josephine that is trying to sort of change um, the the market for home cooked food. So they're trying to enable um, cooks to sell food out of their homes. So I was helping them kind of get their product up to up to snuff for a while, but I kind of had a little bit of downtime there and, and and was really looking for the next place to land where I could really sink my teeth into more node related stuff. So of course GitHub was really appealing to me. And um, I already knew a few members of the, uh, the Electron team having worked with them in various capacities. So the, the NPM website's README parser is actually powered by um, a piece of Atom. So um, I had collaborated with Kevin Sawicki, who's one of the founding members of the Electron team. Um, so I kind of had my foot in the door a little bit there. But um, Electron was just really appealing to me because uh, you know, it's like being a kid in the candy shop. You get yeah. the, the latest browser um, and you get Node mixed in. And the, the combination of those two things is just really, really exciting, especially if you've had to deal with sort of the inadequacy of browser development life for the last 15 or 20 years. Let's go ahead and pause there then. We'll come back and we'll, we'll dive a little deeper, obviously, into the Electron team and where it came from. We got tons of stuff to cover in this show so let's let's break now when we come back we'll dive deeper with zeke and uh an electron we'll be right back 
everyone, Adam Stachowiak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog, and I'm talking to a Rollbar customer. Rollbar puts errors in their place. Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Check them out. Get 90 days of the bootstrap plan totally for free. I had a conversation with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, and he talked deeply about how they use Rollbar and how important that tool is to their developers. Take a listen. One of the key parts about doing continuous delivery, you don't just have to test your software, but you have to constantly keep track of it. You're going to be doing deploys 10 times a day or 20 times a day, and you have to know that each deploy works, and the way to do that is to have really good monitoring. And Rollbar is is literally the thing that you need to do that monitoring. You need to make sure that every time you deploy, you're going to get an alert if something goes wrong, and that's exactly what Rollbar does for, for CircleCI. So obviously CircleCI is important to your customers. You shouldn't have errors, you shouldn't have bugs. And the purpose of a CI is continuous delivery, obviously, but getting your customer's code to production in a fast manner that's tested and all the necessary things a CI provides. Tell me how important Rollbar is to your team and your organization. We operate at serious scale and Literally, the first thing we do when we create a new service is is we install Rollbar in it. Like we we need to have that visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do, and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service, and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just it just wouldn't be possible. Oh, that's awesome! Thanks, Paul. I appreciate your time. So, listeners, we have a special offer for you. Go to rollbar.com slash changelog sign up get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days that's 300,000 errors tracked totally for free give rollbar a try today head over to rollbar.com slash changelog all right we're back with zeke sakelianos and uh zeke you know we love electron we love all the cool things that has come from it's obviously been extracted out of Adam. There's some history there, but for those who are listening to this show, thinking like, okay, I'm catching up. What is what is Electron? How can I use it? Who's it for? What do you tell people? Yeah. So the gist, which I'm going to steal from the homepage, is if you can make a website, you can make a desktop app. So Electron is really just the open source core of the Chrome web browser, mixed in with um, the Node.js runtime, and it what it enables you to do is write desktop applications with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and package them into distributions for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. That's awesome. Now, that story is not an, a new story, though. There's been some others out there in the past, and one question we have here is, is uh, what makes it different, what makes it better than maybe some predecessors? And I won't name those, but from your perspective, what is it about Electron that just makes it be so widely adopted? As, as you mentioned, the homepage, you've got applications like Slack using it. You've got WordPress.com using it, WebTorrent, which we're going to cover in a future show, the new latest and greatest Hyperterm, which we covered most recently with Guillermo Rauch. Um, you know, what makes it better or the better thing than what has ever come before it? You know that? I would say it probably has mostly to do with timing. I mean, so Electron, though it seems like a new thing, it's actually been worked on daily by this guy Chang, who is the creator of it, who's on our team at GitHub. 
he worked on Node WebKit starting four years ago and eventually um, having learned from development on Node WebKit, um, some of the things that he wanted to, that he got wrong or that he wanted to, to redo or do differently. And so he started on Electron. So um, Electron has been really in development for about four years now um, under a different, under various names, I guess you could say. But I think really we're just at a point now where with Node having sort of come into existence about five years ago and the um, ecosystem having enough time to flourish and um, reach a much broader audience of developers, we're just now at this point where Node is a much more accessible tool that is a more fundamental part of every web developer's toolkit. So I, I think it's just, uh, it's more a matter of uh, timing than being the right product. You also have a, a segment here on the homepage that says the hard parts made easy. Uh, as deep as you can, take us into those things. You got automatic updates, native menus and notifications. You got app crash reporting. These are things that typically if you built a native app on any platform, you'd have to figure these things out on your own pretty much. You got debugging and profiling and then the super hard one, Windows installer. So uh, help us break down the hard parts made easy. What, what can you tell us about that? Uh, the way that I interpret that statement is that we have a, a set of APIs that are abstractions around common elements of an operating system. So there's a thing called the tray API, and there are each operating system has its own notion of what the tray is. So on on Mac, or, Mac OS, it's the thing in the top right that has little icons on it, and in the on Windows, it's the the equivalent thing in the bottom right corner of the taskbar. So what Electron does is give you a one API with um, that is sort of ironed out across all those different operating systems to behave appropriately for each OS. So you're not necessarily thinking about the idiosyncrasies of each operating system. You're just coming up with a tray interface that can work in all contexts. So I think that for me is the biggest thing in terms of making the hard parts easy. Um, I guess another one would be that uh, traditionally, if you wanted to become a desktop developer, you sort of have to make a judgment call. You have to decide whether you want to be a Mac developer or a Windows developer. Um, so if you, want to, if you want to develop Apple products, you have to learn Objective-C or Swift. You have to, uh, you know, you have to sort of buy into the ecosystem of using Xcode and all those things. And there's, there's a lot to learn there. And you're, you're basically vendor locking yourself in. Um, so what Electron does is allows you to build those similar kinds of tools, but using technologies that are open. So um, HTML, JavaScript, and CSS have been around for a long time. They're not, they're not going anywhere. So a broader group of people is familiar with these technologies. So the, the barrier to entry to desktop development is much lower now. Anytime you have a cross-platform toolkit, like let's take, you know, the the old one that we can all kind of all collectively roll our eyes at is Java applications on the desktop where they run cross-platform Mac, Linux, OS, or Windows. And they, they're just so obviously non-native, you know, whether it's uh, they share widgets, you know, design UI widgets that are cross-platforms that are not native to the application or to the operating system, or perhaps um, you have new APIs, for instance, you know, Apple's rumoredly releasing a new MacBook Pro with that really cool OLED 
function key row. So you can program against the function key row and put your own buttons in there when your application is focused. Just a rumor, but no doubt that's going to be a brand new API. And because you know Electron and those that came before it are, are cross-platform tools, you don't usually have access to kind of the new shiny. So you can't make it feel as native. native. Yeah. And so the, I guess the question is, is that doesn't seem to be slowing it down any. Like we're still all excited about it. So what Adam and I are wondering is like, does it have affordances for you to work around those things or does it give you access to native APIs better than the old cross-platform things? Or maybe they're just momentum with the web that it doesn't matter anymore. I don't know. Yeah, so uh, there are actually lots of APIs that are specific to a certain operating system. Like, um, what would be a good example? So um, there's some something related to your computer sleeping. Um, like when a sleep event occurs or a waking event occurs, those events are unique to, to Mac OS. So in the Electron documentation, those things are hard denoted with a little symbol for each operating system. So there are some things that are unique to each operating system, but in general, we're trying to add every feature that we can to Electron that is available on each operating system. So for the, uh, the example you just gave of the specific keyboard functions, that would be the kind of thing that would be implemented and it would only work on Mac and we would just have to document it as such. But in general, these things are landing yeah. in Electron pretty quickly. And we have mm -hmm. some of some brave users who are installing the, you know, the very newest versions of Mac OS like Sierra and helping us find those right. bugs ahead of time before it lands. So you don't have to go and remake the wheel on your own. So like Jared's saying, these these particular features that might be only Mac OS or whatever, you still plan to or at least have some ideas that you will want to implement the APIs for Electron where you don't have to, you know, kind of take it 80% with Electron and then the other 20%, well, you just figure out the native stuff on your own. In general, yeah. I think that's a, a good blanket yeah. answer. Let's talk, let's go back a little bit into the history now that we know what Electron is and what it offers. It's kind of a cool story because like you said earlier in the show, it was extracted out of Atom which is another huge, you know, GitHub project and endeavor and a successful project on its own. And yet out from Atom comes Electron, arguably even more successful than Atom itself, just because it's platform and being used, you know, by probably millions of people at this point, uh, whether they know it or not. Tell us a little bit of what you know about the story of extracting, Ad extracting Electron out of Atom, the history there, decision-making and so on. Sure. So I think really the turning point was when companies outside of GitHub started to use um, the tool, which was then called Atom Shell, uh, for their commercial products. So I think the main, the, the tipping point was when uh, Microsoft's Visual Studio Code editor started using Atom Shell. Um, and it seemed a little bit strange to to still call it Atom Shell when it was being re repurposed and used elsewhere. So I'm not sure where the origin of the Electron name came from, although I think it's a pretty fitting name. Uh, I think it came from possibly defunct uh, GitHub CEO. But yeah, essentially they just renamed it so that it would have a more uh, generic name that was representative of its uh, potential ubiquity, I guess. One thing that I'm interested in, and perhaps since you're 
somewhat new to the project, you might not have these insights. So just say no if you don't. But you know, when when did Adam Shell become a thing, and why? So was it always separate, or was it always part? Was it part of Adam, and then they said, "Hey, let's make this its own thing." And then once that got popular, like you said, they renamed it to Electron. But was Adam Shell always separate, or was it part of Adam and then got separated? So I'm a little hazy on the details. For, the, for a definitive story, um, on the Electron blog, uh, Chang has actually started to publish a series of posts about the history of Electron, and I think he's done two so far. Mm. Um, but one of them outlines the very beginning from when he was first working on Node WebKit. And I think, the, I think what happened was that um, the Atom team was working on Atom, and they, I think they started with Node WebKit and found some issues with it. Like it didn't entirely serve their purposes. So they reached out to Chang and I think GitHub for a long time was actually just uh, contracting with Chang. Chang was the contractor for GitHub. And I think that's really where the, the new Atom Shell slash Electron project got some life breathed into it was because GitHub needed it for Atom. You know, as programmers, we're always trying to decide the right time to extract yeah. to add a layer of, of, of abstraction. And it seems like in the, this is a huge successful case when uh, what was Adam Shell and became Electron. Maybe not obvious at first to them, but uh, once it became obvious, was a huge move. And uh, perhaps the best move they made with regards to the project. Because, like I said earlier, Electron, uh, its adoption at this point is probably far supersedes that, uh, supersedes that of Adam's, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I actually don't have any numbers on that, but um, of course, I mean, it's just a, it's a, a more general purpose tool that's sort of lower right. in the stack. So of course it's utility is, is more broad. I just feel like too, like with um, the reference to Guillermo and Hyperterm, you know, that it, it enables, which you know, exactly what it says, if you can build for the web, you can build a desktop app and uh, on the different platforms. I think it's kind of interesting to look at this perspective of, these superpowers essentially that came out of Adam, Jared, as you're, as you're kind of sharing the story of where Electron came from, where this was an internal thing at GitHub, whether it was called Atom Shell or not. In the beginning, it was there to help prop up what is Atom on many platforms. Right. And uh, the decision to extract that has given uh, so much power to people like Guillermo who simply want to use the necessary tools in JavaScript to build out a new terminal emulator. And rather than having to think through all the things that have already been thought through, Electron is open source. They use Electron to build and deliver Hyperterm and so many others. He's not the only case of it, but what does it mean to you to have people like Guillermo have that kind of power to, to be able to build for the web, um, but then also be able to deliver desktop apps through Electron? As a designer heart that got their heart broken a little bit, back to developer and now back to a mix of designer developer, how do you feel about that? Well, I'm really excited about it. I mean, I just feel actually my coworker Jessica Lord described this 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 is the promised land, right? Like we've we've waited so long to have like <laughs> a legitimate development life as JavaScript developers. I mean, JavaScript has been really abused as a language. Everybody has described it as ugly and underpowered for so many years, but because of Node, it has really had a chance to flourish outside of the browser and become applicable in so many different environments. And so now that we have this thing that is a combination of the, the hottest web browser and node itself, 
you know, yeah. the ecosystem is just flourishing. So I actually didn't notice, I didn't know that you guys did a, um, an issue on, uh, or an episode on Hyperterm. I'm gonna have to listen to that, but I think that's really one of the most, it's that project is exemplary of the excitement behind Electron yes. in general, like just within, I mean, the project is maybe two months old and we've already seen there's a, there's a repository called awesome hyperterm that has just contributed to like, like mad. It's like, it's, every it's a month old. Uh, when I was talking to Guillermo, I thought like you did, I thought it was out there a little longer. And when I talked to Guillermo uh, for that show, he's like, we just released this like a week and a half ago. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So at the time of the show, which we released it on the 29th, I think it was recorded a week beforehand uh, of July. So last month there was around 90 repositories on GitHub that had the term hyperterm in it. That was mm-hmm. like add-ons or packages for, for hyperterm. And then, you know, during the call, by the end of it, there was another 15 more. And so it just shows <laughs> you how fast that something like that moves. But the yeah. cool thing is, is enabling that kind of development. Because like, yes. you know, without Electron, it would have been so much harder for Gamma to actually deliver that. I'm sure he could probably have done it, but you just reduced all the barriers to entry. Yeah, no, it's really exciting, especially with Hyperterm. Like just to see that somebody built a Hyperterm package manager in that first week that it came out and it's powered by NPM. So if anyone wants to build a plugin or a package for Hyperterm, it's a matter of publishing to NPM. So there's not any, mm-hmm. there's not really a bottleneck for contributing to the ecosystem because there's already something in place that works really well. So I'm really excited. I actually hit a, I've been using Hyperterm uh exclusively for about two weeks now and it's got a few little bugs but for the most part it works really well for me but i i had a bug with my uh font rendering yesterday and i was able to open the web inspector in my terminal and figure out what was wrong and that was so cool yeah because i had just typed a font name wrong but you know actually being able to figure out why um i was having a problem using familiar tool you know familiar web developer tools it was really empowering because if I, if something like that was happening with terminal.app or iterm, you know, I'd just be kind of up a creek. But just being in an environment that is basically the Chrome browser and having access to all these tools that I'm already familiar with as a web developer is really empowering. Well, let's talk um, on that note because Hyperterm is obviously a great candidate for the power of Electron. Let's talk to the developers out there that that should be using Electron. What Zeke, are there any dreams or any, uh, is there a list inside of GitHub of like, these are the kind of apps we would love to see built with Electron? Like, what out there should be built with Electron? Well, really anything that should run on the desktop. <laughs> um, the nice thing about Electron is that, or one of the nice things, I guess, is that you don't have to conceive of an app as you know, a thing with a visual interface. It could actually be an app that's just like a daemon that's running in the background. So... Um, historically, if you've wanted to make a node app that does that, um, it's actually kind of a lot of work to try and just get an app that will start when your system starts up or when you log in and will just run in the background and do something useful. Um, you have to edit plist files on a Mac. Um, you basically have to do a bunch of tedious work to, to get it running and sort of pray that it works out. But with Electron, you can actually just um, it has built-in APIs for launching itself at startup. Um, so 
if you wanted to run some kind of daemon, like I have an Electron app that's just tracking my location all the time. So I have this running stream of geo information that's just being pumped into a GeoJSON file that's just for my own amusement. But um, I think the interesting thing there is that it's not just about developing new graphic interfaces. It's really just a way to simplify the, the process of creating apps for the desktop. So you asked um, who should be using Electron or what kind of apps should be built with it. Um, I mean, I think that's really only limited by our imagination. So we're getting lots of really interesting apps coming in on the Electron website. So that's an open source website and people who build apps can submit them with like an icon and a, a little bit of a description and a link to the repository if it's open source and things like that. So we're seeing a lot of things come in um, and it's a real, it's a, it's a mixed bag. It's not like a specific kind of application. I'd say the most notable apps that are um, built with Electron are probably Atom, Slack. Slack uses Electron for their Windows and uh, Linux clients, and they're in the process of using it for, um, for the Mac client as well. And their, Slack is really ramping up their Electron team. They now have at least three people full-time uh, working on Electron stuff, which is almost rivaling what we have at GitHub. So that's pretty exciting. Um, of course, Visual, Visual Studio Code, which I mentioned, uh, there's an app called WebTorrent, which is a, um, just a, a web torrenting, you know, a, an app for downloading torrents, which is really simple and straightforward. Um, and then I've been using one called SimpleNote, uh, from, which is created by Automatic, the WordPress people. Um, and Simple Note is just a note-taking app. And of course, note-taking apps are dime a dozen, but I just, it has really nice integration with um, the, a mobile client as well. So it's just a note-taking app that kind of syncs across all the devices. Um, my personal favorite Electron app ever is called Moji Bar, and it's just a, an app for pulling up a little search tool for finding emoji. And it's nice because if you don't know the name of the emoji that you're looking for, you can type in a keyword and on sorry, you'll be able to find it. So that was created by Muan, who uh, works on the design team at GitHub. And she's, she's produced some really elegant, simple Electron apps. And I, I usually encourage people to look at her apps as a starting point because they're usually like a single file that you can read through and pretty clearly understand how it works. Um, she doesn't really do the thing of like dropping in Babel and React and every new thing under the sun. So nice place to start. Yeah, a good good starting point there. Yeah, it sounds like to me, it's it. This kind of reminds me of the of the Renaissance. That's uh, I guess maybe more like the Revolution, less Renaissance. That's happening on mobile. You know, where you have iOS that doesn't seem to play well with like web apps, right? They want a native app. And then you got this, uh, just this renaissance of like, uh, renaissance again, revolution of wanting to build with native tools that you know, and kind of having this operating system resist you or prevent you from doing it as easily, right? Like adding a web app to your home screen in iOS is not as common as it is on Android. And so forth, it seems like this might enable people to essentially do what you've done in the past with something like fluid app where you simply wrap 
a website and a Mac app and a, a light to launch it. Yeah. And it kind of is a little bit like that. Do you see, or do you think that uh, some applications or some websites that act as applications should really be native applications and would Electron add more? Like we said earlier, does it add more to it than building it in the native web browser? You know what I mean? Like it seems like there's a lot more of this potential happening and it's not quite there yet. But some of the mentions you just did, said there of, of the of the examples like Mojibar seems like uh, you could probably go to a website, mojibar.com, and search for those just as well. Why make it in the system tray? Mm-hmm. You know? So interestingly, uh, Mojibar has a website counterpart, which is called emojisearch.info or something like that. I can't remember it offhand, but um, for me, it's about... Um, productivity so it's a lot easier for me to invoke a keyboard command that opens the moji bar search with the thing emphasized and i don't have to make any network requests so i'm in the middle of working on some i'm like in slack trying to type some message or trying to uh file a pr or an issue on github and i want to use an emoji i don't really want to open a new browser tab type in a web address focus the input search click so it's really it's really just about being able to move more adeptly or get things done more adeptly um especially with like keyboard shortcuts so in the case of moji bar really it's just about the the convenience and the speed this is making me think i mean on the same note here i mean it's jared i don't know if this is appropriate for the show to dream like this but it's really making me think like that the change log could potentially have you know, something to do with Electron and, and ship a version that essentially just easily adds like a, a player to someone's local machine. And rather than having to go to the website or open up their mobile app, just one more way to listen to the changelog is, or the many shows we have coming out, is a, a key command, just like Zeke had just said. And now you can access your playlist and play the next you know episode or whatever. I mean, I just wonder if that's what we should be encouraging people to do. Not so much us, but like, that type of behavior using Electron. Yeah, I mean, I think that changelog would be a great candidate for that. So if you, you're, you have these um, episode files, which are, I don't know how, how big one is on average, but, you know, a considerable number of megabytes. Yeah. And if you had a desktop app, you could, you could download that thing, store it in your user's cache, and the file would be readily available at all times. So if anybody wanted to listen on an airplane or in some place where they didn't have web access, they could have a, a backup of all their change log episodes. Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who has a website that is web app-ish, you know, I'm sitting here using Google Docs thinking, you know, this kind of reminds me of the days of Fluid and the other tools, Adam, back when we used to wrap, you know, certain websites that we visit often instead of having them pinned in our browser to, right. to a specific tab, like breaking them free from the browser. And, and I guess my question around that, obviously for changelog, we could build an electron style changelog thing that you know, ships as an app, but does it give you the pod? Like, does it let, does it empower users or just app developers? So I love Google docs. And so could I build with electron, you know, a desktop version of Google docs without having to run Google Docs itself. Can I wrap it and provide yeah. some integrations with my, yeah? Yeah, so the really easy way to do that would be to use a tool called Nativifier, which is kind of a weird name, but it's essentially like Fluid App, but it's an Electron thing. 
And it's a command line tool yeah. where you just call native for fire, you give it a URL, and you can pass various arguments like the icon you want it to use, um, the name that you want the app to have when it lands in your applications directory and things like that. But the really interesting part is you can also pass in a custom script that'll be executed in the window context of that app. So let's say you you wanted to make your own little github.com GUI or your Google Docs GUI as a standalone app, but you wanted to make it so that various aspects of the app behave differently. Like you don't want to see the the menu bar at the top of the screen. So you could just write a tiny little JavaScript that is like, you know, document dot find this element dot remove this element. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so you have a lot of flexibility there and you don't actually have to do a lot of work. So in that case, you don't really need to know anything about Electron. If you know um, a little bit about how to work with the DOM and like mm -hmm. um, if you want to drop in jQuery or whatever, um, that's all doable. So that's like the easiest way to, to do it. But if you want to go, if you want more explicit control over wrapping some website, um, then you could actually create your own Electron app from scratch and then um, have it open up that website in a web view. And then you still have access to all kinds of other things. So in that, in that context, you would have access to the user's file system. You'd have access to all the you know, HTML5 APIs like geolocation and things like that. So if you wanted to add supplementary uh, features or behaviors or take things away from existing um, websites, you have that option. So it's kind of like an extension of um, like browser extensions that's going right. a little bit even farther. I've done, I have a couple of them that I run for, like I have one for inbox, Google, uh, like Gmail inbox that, that I use just to keep it. So I don't have to have a pin tab in my browser, but. I think it's probably a good chance for a break. On the other side, we got some more questions for you. Like what's the future of Electron? Are there any downsides? When's it a bad idea to use? Um, those kind of things. So we'll break here and we'll talk about those on the other side. Every Saturday morning, we ship an email called Changelog Weekly. It's our editorialized take on what happened this week in open source and software development. It's not generated by a machine. There's no algorithms involved. It's me, it's Jared, hand curating this email, keeping up to date with the latest headlines, links, videos, projects, and repos. And to get this awesome email in your inbox every single week, head to changelog.com weekly and subscribe. All right, we're back with Zeke talking about Electron and we've talked about what it is, why you can use it, why you might want to use it. We even talked about the changelog, maybe building an Electron app. How cool would that be? Super cool. Um, let's talk, yeah, it'd be super cool. Let's talk about the downside of like, let's talk about a little bit of places where maybe Electron doesn't quite fit in or it's not optimal. Cases where somebody might pick it up and then say, hmm, this is not the tool for the job that I need solving. So Zeke, I know it's tough because you're you're an electron guy, so you got all the good sides, but surely there's some places where it doesn't quite fit. Can you, can you share some insight there? Sure. So the biggest one that stands out to me is that electron doesn't work for making mobile apps. So that's one of the questions we get a lot is like, why doesn't it support mobile? When when will it support mobile? 
And the best answer we have for that right now is, um, you know, it seems inevitable that eventually the world will converge on a JavaScript, HTML, and CSS framework for building apps that can be deployed to or built for all platforms and all devices. We're not there yet. So I think, I think the thing to do now is just design your applications in such a way that uh, the moving parts can be shared across platforms. So if you're developing an Electron app, you could develop part of your app in, um, as a server that could be used by your mobile app and your desktop app, or you can write um, small NPM modules that can be shared between your applications. So that's, that's kind of a bummer, but I think it's, it's only a matter of time before um, we will get to this beautiful place where JavaScript developers can, can write uh, native applications. And there are interesting things happening in that space. I mean, of course, React Native is a really exciting project um, and you can build apps for, for those targets. Um, Electron has a little bit of catching up to do in that space though. Another thing that comes to mind is that uh, in general, Windows developers are um, underrepresented. So a lot of the, the, the web development world is focused around Unix and Linux kind of methodologies. And there's an expectation that um, you can run bash commands on your machine. So um, a lot of times we will get uh, bug reports from, from people running on, um, on Windows systems. And our team, we all have uh, virtual machine, machines for running various versions of uh, Linux and Windows. But without that sort of intimate knowledge of, of Windows and how to develop in Windows, it can be hard. So that's definitely an underrepresented part of the developer community now. I would imagine that Microsoft with their Visual Studio Code project would probably be able to help out or at least be a good you know, citizen with regards to getting you guys Windows bug reports or help. That, have you experienced that at all? Yeah, there's a guy named Felix Riesenberg or Reisenberg. I'm not sure how to say it, but he just uh, he was at Microsoft for a while and just very recently uh, moved over to work at Slack. Mm -hmm. And um, he's been really one of the sort of foremost uh, evangelists for Electron in the Windows space. And so now Slack, now that Slack has uh, three or more engineers working on Electron, they're all actually really focused on the Windows stuff and they're all core contributors to Electron as well. So um, things are definitely getting better and we do have access to people who um, work for Microsoft or work mm -hmm. on Microsoft platform. But um, internally on our team, it's definitely a space that we are not totally comfortable with yet. Well, you have four people on your team there at GitHub. And no doubt, y'all are busy working on all sorts of cool new things. So let's talk about what you've been working on lately, um, new features coming to Electron Changes, and then give us, give us a glimpse into the future for the project. Sure. So Electron gets shipped about, a new version gets shipped roughly once every week. And typically, this is just to get us up to running the latest version of Chromium and the latest node. Um, so whatever features are trickling down from Chromium, those automatically end up in Electron. Um, usually it's a lot of small details that are um, 
you know, sort of idiosyncratic little pieces of uh, changes on various operating systems. Like uh, it's mostly stuff around native integration, like the way that trays behave or the way that windows behave when you full screen them or take them out of full screen mode. So, or the transparency of windows and things like that. So mostly just lots of little bug fixes and maintaining the status quo. Um, we've recently improved the process for um, publishing to the Windows Store and the Mac App Store. So um, there's a document on the Electron website for, for how to publish to those um, stores. Um, there's a little bit of work you have to do, and there's some considerations that have to be made when you want to publish for those platforms. Like if you're publishing to the Mac App Store, you can't use the auto updater or you can't use the debugger, the built-in debugging tool, because it makes network requests that aren't allowed by the App Store. So there are some considerations yeah. that need to be made, but there is definitely full support for publishing to those two stores. Um, another thing that just happened is that we reached out to the owner of the Electron package on NPM, and uh, he was willing to hand us the, the name. So traditionally, if you wanted to start building an Electron app, you would NPM install Electron Prebuilt, which is just a pre-compiled version of, of Electron that is the right one for your operating system. So we had a lot of users who would just dive right in and type NPM install Electron, and they'd get the wrong Electron because it was some old project. Um, so we just managed to switch over to that new name, and we will continue mm -hmm. supporting the old name through 2016. Um, but we've done a lot of work in user land to patch various popular projects so that they will work with either name. But the hope there mm. is that newcomers to the project will not be dumbfounded when they NPM install the wrong thing. It's nice to hear that the owner of the Electron name was willing to give it over to you without much trouble. Yeah, his response was, I knew it was just a matter of time before you would contact me. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have your lawyers kick down the door? That's so funny. Yeah, we actually did the same thing with the GitHub. So we have the Electron organization on GitHub as well. And there was a user named Electron. And so we reached out to them too. And they were happily willing to turn it over in exchange for a GitHub hoodie. So those GitHub hoodies are quite lucrative. <laughs> yeah, the power <laughs> of swag. But they can pave the way for many things. Indeed. Um, other things coming along, we are working on generating a, a JSON schema of all of Electron's APIs. So the goal there is to just have a JSON object that describes all the classes, all the modules, um, all of their methods, arguments, events, the properties of all those events. And it's kind of open-ended what the purpose of that is for uh, immediately. The immediate purpose is just to... Uh, um, have some kind of specification for our APIs. And so we've kind of gotten more um, detail oriented around how we generate our documentation for Electron. Um, but the hope is that this schema could be used to make IDEs that are more Electron aware. So as you're typing Electron code, um, it'll auto suggest the right method names and arguments and things like that. Um, and also TypeScript is kind of blowing up in this community. so. We're looking to figure out how to get some TypeScript definitions for Electron that are always going to be up to date. Now, something else you teased me about uh, during the break, which I'd love to have you share with the listeners, is that we talked about a changelog desktop app, but 
that's just conjecture. One thing that you said is definitely, at least in the works, is a GitHub desktop app based on Electron. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, the GitHub desktop app that the public knows about right now is um, it's built in, well, it's actually two different code bases. So um, there's the Windows version and the Mac version, and those were sort of worked on and maintained by two different teams at GitHub. And um, recently they decided to, um, that, you know, that we should be dog fooding and actually using Electron internally for more projects. So they've started on a new version of GitHub desktop, which is not yet public, but um, I've been watching the activity and it's really astounding how much work yeah. they've gotten done. Um, it's just a small team working on this app. So it's really nice because they don't have to, the, the sort of operating system specific expertise is not really required in the same way anymore. Mm. So the team can move a lot more quickly, but um, yeah, stay tuned for um, a new version of GitHub desktop at some point. I'm not sure when it's expected to be um, opened up, but it will also be an open source app. So um, when it's, when it's ready. So the hope is that that can be uh, an app that is exemplary of the kind of things you can do with Electron. Is it the same team working on it or is it a new team? Zeke? It is the same team. And mm. uh, so Josh Abernathy, who runs the team, was just had a recent tweet stream about uh, or tweet storm about how how awesome it is to be working in this um, with this set of tools where they can move so quickly. And he was sort of lamenting the fact that he spent so many years as a Cocoa developer and that he never would have been able to move this quickly. Wow. Developing in Cocoa. So. So is this application, is it kind of a, a feature looking for feature parity with the current GitHub desktop or is it a rethinking and brand new app? It's definitely for starters seeking feature parity with the existing app because they don't want it to be uh, too much of a change from what existing GitHub desktop users are uh, accustomed to. So gotcha. Um, I think the, lo the larger, the longer term goal is um, for this tool to be something that allows for deeper integration into the desktop environment for GitHub. So it could also become the, the sort of blessed way, the canonical way of setting up GitHub on your machine. So for new users who are just unfamiliar with Git, or even if they are familiar with Git, this could be the best way to just set up github on your machine by just running this one installer and knowing that everything is is working properly for you i like the idea of dog footing it too because you know you've your atom team obviously has had um the pleasure of electron obviously with it being a starting point but then also to to look at other areas of github where electron can be used and then dog footing is always good because if you continue to build the desktop app natively versus electron we might say Hmm, why are they doing that? But we're mm -hmm. not going to do that because that's not the truth. Yeah. Well, it's time for some closing questions. Is there anything else you want to share before we uh, cut to that part of the show? Anything else you want to share about Electron, the team, the future, anything left unsaid? Um, yeah, I have a couple notes here. Um, one thing that's really cool that I didn't cover is that because, you're, because uh, Electron is based on Chromium, you get all these really nice new features um, that as a web developer, you're probably not accustomed to using. Like when you're doing normal web development, 
you have to consider all the target browsers and all the sort of inadequacies of those various browsers. And when you're just working on Chromium, it's like you don't have to think about all those things. So Chromium has nearly complete ES6 support. So if you've started to get accustomed to writing the newer style of JavaScript, you can just do that out of the box with Electron. You don't have to set up Babel um, in your tool chain. You can just write ES6 and it works. The other thing is like there are a lot of really interesting new CSS features coming, or actually they're already in existing versions of uh, Chromium and Electron. So one of them is uh, CSS properties, custom properties. They're like, if you're familiar with variables from Less or SAS or Stylus, it's essentially the same thing. It's you can de declare a property in your CSS style sheets and reuse it in various ways. So super cool. That, yeah. So there's like all these little things that are making regular CSS and regular JavaScript good enough. So you don't the you don't have to spend as much time setting up an entire build process for your application. You don't have to bring in SAS or less or stylus and transpile those on the fly. You can just write regular CSS. And in, in many cases, it's actually good enough. There's also um, a new thing called the CSS containment property, which lets you limit the scope of um, the browser's layout and paint work. So um, if you're trying to get really high performance uh, graphics in your application, you, this is a new sort of low-level feature that you can that you can manipulate in CSS to to get the highest performance and frame rate out of your out of the DOM. Hmm. So those things are all really exciting, and it's just it's really nice to be able to to create applications without having to set up too much boilerplate. It's always good not to have to jump through hoops or do so much ceremony to get the latest greatest features you know, delivering to or building to one particular browser obviously has its advantages. So it's nice to see that Electron allows developers out there to capitalize on that advantage and, and even save a ton of time because that's the, that's the point, right? The, the less time we spend redoing work or reworking things that has already been done before or jumping right to ES6 with the latest features of CSS, the, the better it is for the ending product that we deliver to end users. So... Anything else you want to share? Is that, uh, is that it for your list or can we go on to some of our closing questions? Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Awesome. So one of the questions we like to ask, especially in this case here, like GitHub is huge. We're, we're honored to have you on the show and to share the story of Electron and your story also um, with our listeners. And we're huge fans of all the work happening there, but you've, you've got to be asked all the time, like how can people of the open source world, how can developers step in and, and help the Electron mission. So is it issues? Is it testing builds? Like where can people step in to, to really help Electron be exactly what you have all uh, dreamed it should be and help that mission keep moving forward? So one of the things you just said is what, what we've dreamed it should be. And we've been kind of trying to work out a roadmap internally for Electron. Like what do we want it to be in the future? Where do we want to take it? And one of the things we realized is that as, a, as an open source project with a giant community, one of our main goals should be to listen to the community and to let the community steer the development of the project. So we shouldn't be like 
masterminding the future of this thing. And in some sense, it, it should just um, evolve organically. And that's how it's been going so far. So for most of the work we're doing is, is just kind of um, stewarding the community uh, contributions and, and helping get more and more contributors up to speed. Um, but areas where we're lacking are, uh, like I said, we, um, we could always use help in the Windows d department. So um, anyone who is an, a Windows developer working with Electron, we can always use uh, your help on issues. But another one is um, translations. So we have our documentation, which we maintain in English. Um, and the English version is the only one that we actually programmatically lint and make sure that it's all accurate. Um, and there's, there's a huge collection of um, translations in, I think it's 11 languages now, and over 100 people have helped us translate the docs into those languages, but um, they fall out of date. So anytime we make a change, it's not guaranteed that anybody's going to jump in and um, update the English docs to work on those 11 different languages. So um, multilingual people, who are using Electron, we could definitely use your help uh, just jumping in and making sure the docs are up to date. At some point, we will be doing a more large scale effort to potentially hire translators um, to work on keeping a version, various translations up to date to a degree that we're comfortable displaying them on the website and saying that, yes, this is definitely accurate. But in the meantime, yeah, uh, just community contribution on documentation would be really helpful. So the docs are actually part of the core Electron repository, right? So you got uh, slash docs, everything lives in there. Um, so if you need to make changes or initiate some changes, that's the, that's the easy way to do it there. You've, you've got the blog where you're obviously keeping people up to date. And I think you mentioned some other ways that to, to kind of voice the community's opinion is issues the best place for that is there a certain tag on your issues that you're leveraging to kind of say you know help needed or help wanted or anything like that where somebody can kind of easily go there and see an, a quick list to to start stepping in and helping out yeah we do definitely use some of those labels and thanks for outlining where the docs live yeah we definitely keep the repository as the canonical source of all the documentation in the docs folder and the website the majority of the content on the website is actually just repurposed from the the repository aside from the blog posts but our plan internally is to actually um, continue to use the repository even more as the source of documentation because it it's in it's in front of people's eyes more um, and it's easier for us to just agree that we have this one canonical place to keep all the docs so don't expect that to change anytime soon um, but yeah, we, we definitely make heavy use of issue labels as well, too. So for people jumping in, it's pretty easy to find stuff to work on. I'm seeing the label beginner. So is that, uh, and then I also see a lot of beginner labels attached with documentation, too, and even enhanced. And is that, are you familiar with that, that label by any chance? And is that something that I also see help wanted, too? So I've only seen one of those, I think, is under help wanted. But okay, yeah, those I are think two labels beginner. I think are kind of like easy jump in points, for example. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's like one, I don't know, there's more than that. You know, anyways, that's a good, that's a good label to, to hit up. There's actually two that have help wanted that's an issue and it's open. So you got two help wanted places. So 
we'll link that and the beginner label up in the show notes. That way we can give people a direct link to the issues that uh, could be a good place to start with. In general, I mean, this applies to any open source project, but if you're filing an issue, try to see if the issue already exists somewhere on the repository instead right. of just opening one from scratch. Um, and another thing is, you know, sometimes we get pull requests from people that don't necessarily fit the bill. Uh, a good practice is to often just open an issue first to talk about what you want to change. Um, so you get a little bit of conversation around it first. Um, that way, nobody wastes their time writing code and opening a PR that, that may not get merged. Uh, a question we love asking uh, is a hero question. So you've got somebody that's been an influencer to you, somebody that's shaped who you are over these years. And uh, it could be a programmer, it could be somebody else, but uh, we typically frame it as who's your programming hero. So who's that person for you? Uh, my programming hero is Max Ogden, known as Denormalize on Twitter and Max Ogden on GitHub. And he's um, one of the early sort of members of the, the Node community. Um, and he's just a very prolific contributor to, to open source. Um, he created a, a sort of methodology called openopensource.org. Um, and it's basically, uh, you know, he was creating so many repositories and eventually there's only so much that one person can do to maintain these repositories. So he started handing out uh, admin privileges to anyone who is making meaningful and valuable contributions to his project. So the idea behind open open source is if someone's contributing to your project and they're doing a good job of it, let them be a part of it. Um, give them admin access, make them a, an owner on the NPM repository as well. Um, and this has a really profound effect on projects in my experience like as soon as you give someone admin access they feel a sense of ownership over the project and in general they're not going to mess it up they're going to take it seriously yeah. so it can be a really great way to sort of free yourself up from um projects that can become burdensome especially if you're just producing a lot of really quality work and people start to really become dependent on these projects um Max Ogden was a very, very early contributor to a lot of Electron projects. So there's, a, there's an organization on GitHub called Electron-Userland. And some of the most fundamental pieces of the Electron toolkit are on there. There's one called Electron Prebuilt, which I mentioned earlier. And that's the, the thing that you, when you NPM install Electron, you're getting a, a pre-compiled version for your operating system of Electron. So Max Ogden and um, his partner in crime, Maffintosh, uh, Matthias Boos, I think is his name. Uh, they wrote that. And they also wrote another thing called Electron Packager, Electron Download, a bunch of different parts of the Electron ecosystem. And GitHub, our team has slowly started to become more involved in maintaining these projects, but we are indebted to Max Ogden for having written them in the first place. So um, Max is now working on a project called DAT. And the goal of DAT is to enable scientists to share data with each other. So um, that's been his main focus for maybe a couple of years now. Um, and he's mostly been focusing on raising money to build up a team um, for this nonprofit to enable scientists to share data. And in general, 
his mission is about improving the free exchange of information. And that's really what is the most inspiring thing to me. I'm not sure if you purposefully said Max Ogden or not, because uh, on September 1st, we have a new show called Request for Commits. You may have heard of it, uh, Zeke, but uh, the listeners are definitely getting more familiar with it. We've got three episodes out. As of Friday, we'll have four uh, when this show actually airs. So uh, we actually had Max on in episode, uh, I believe it's six, which is slated to release in, uh, in the month of September. So September 1st. And we talked about that and we talked about not, not that set in slang, but that as the project that you mentioned, uh, <laughs> we talked about, you know, grant funding, what happens when you pay for open source work. We talked about all sorts of interesting things, his process to get grant funding. So Max has been very successful with, you know, getting and receiving grants and actually executing them very well. And that's one of those things. And talk deeply about that project and about the, the human side of, open source, not so much the technical sides of DAP by any means, but, you know, this grant funding process, uh, leading open source in the right direction. So if you're at all a fan of that, listeners, you know, we love requests for commits. Uh, that show is hosted by Nadia Ekbal and Michael Rogers, and you can find it at changelaw.com slash RFC. If you have not subscribed yet, please go do it right now. Um, and September 1st is when Max's show comes out and it's going to be awesome. So perfect. Thank you for the perfect layup on plugging requests for commits because that's it couldn't have been any better. I, re I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. Anything else? Any last closing thoughts before we tell off the show? I just feel really lucky to be working on this project and um, to be part of something that people are so excited about. I feel like it's been a really long time in the making and we're just now finally in this place where developing applications with open web technologies is a reality for people. Yeah. It seems to be the perfect timing and even more so perfect timing for you, considering the history you shared early in the show and, uh, you know, having that designer background, but also the, the responsibility you've gained over these years on the developer side to deliver such a, a cool thing to impact such a large community, I think is, uh, has got to be emotionally rewarding as well as, you know, just rewarding in general as, as something you do every day. You know, that's that's a cool thing to do. Yeah, I mean, just to, to be able to work on something that I really enjoy and get paid for it. That's what more can you ask for? Nothing else. That's it, man. That's the that's the uh, that's where you want to be right there. Yeah. Well, Zeke, thanks so much for taking the time to to share with us your story, uh, the GitHub side of Electron Story, and how the community can uh, begin to dream with you, and then also just the invitation to the community, saying that this isn't. You know, while it's created by GitHub and maintained by GitHub, it's not a GitHub-only uh, steered thing that uh, you invited the community to dream with you and to, and to influence that change and step in where they can to make Electron what the community needs it to be. So I, I appreciate you having that, uh, that direction. And listeners, we thank you, obviously, for listening to the show. We ship two emails uh, every week, one daily, one weekly. And uh, we actually didn't call it daily, we called it nightly. So if you go to changelaw.com slash nightly. And Zeke, you're a fan of this email, right? You, you, uh, you like the white version versus the black version, not so much the color, but the fact that it's uh, a little bit brighter on your eyes. I'm not sure why, but uh, <laughs> uh, you're a fan of nightly. So any, any quick sentiment on nightly for the listeners to, to uh, chew on for that? Yeah, it's just a good way to keep up on things that are happening on GitHub every day. We love GitHub, of course. So uh, changelaw.com slash nightly for that email. Subscribe to that. And uh, Jared and I, we worked tirelessly all week long uh, prepping for 
weekly, which is what we call Changelaw Weekly. You can go to changelaw.com slash weekly, subscribe to that. It's our editorialized take on what's happening this week in open source and software development. Our latest shows are in there. Uh, we do a lot of a lot of writing, painstakingly writing that email every single week, and we love doing it. So please subscribe to that. But that's, uh, that's it for this show here. So let's call this one done and say goodbye. Bye. Thanks again, Zeke. Thank you. Bye.